Welcome to Seize the GM. I'm your host, Zended. I am your co-host, Jules. And I'm Garda Moje. Have you ever had a great idea for a campaign? Do you have a group of friends who want to play an RPG, but you have no one to run it? Do you want to see what the world is like behind the GM screen instead of in front of it? Well, we're here to help you do just that. Each week, the three of us will be discussing various GMing topics, terminology, maps, atmosphere, world building, you name it. So sit back and relax. Let us help you. Improve your art of GMing. One show at a time. Better, better, better. And we are entering the banter segment. And welcome back to another episode of Seize the GM. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Hello to all of you loyal fans and listeners. Yeah. And hi to you, Zen. How are you? I'm, I'm doing good. Um, this is going to be an interesting episode because there is just the two voices this time. For everyone who was here for Jules, I'm sorry. She couldn't (laughs) join us. She sends her love, affection, snark, regards, and other warm and uh, dark thoughts. I was going to say dark thoughts. I I believe she said, oh, yeah, there's a part of the reason why she didn't make it today. She got a flu shot. (laughs) And that can put you down. But if you haven't gotten your flu shot, get one. This year in particular, it is important you should do it. Herd immunity is your friend, and I support that. In the meantime, you're stuck with Zen and I. Yes. Yes. Because also, Null is on vacation this week. (laughs) What is this vacation thing of which you speak? I do not understand. Well, see, those of us who have jobs that are not um, in the sector that yours is in, we get this thing called vacation time. And what happens is for people like me, I get like six and a half weeks of it. I went to origins. Doesn't that count? Well, that was a vacation. Um, See, I'm going to be going on vacation Saturday (laughs) (laughs) again. I've already taken like, this will be my third week this year. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, that's that's what it is. Uh, so, and sadly, the thing that I was hoping to be able to announce on this banter segment, I do not get to do. Um, other than to say that, you know what? Uh... Good things come to to those who wait. I'm thinking I might spoil it a little. Because if anybody that lives in the Knoxville area knows, um, there's a little game shop here in town. And they have agreed to allow us to set up to record in the shop for a actual play 
element to the podcast. So, (laughs) that's a thing that I'm working on. But if you're in the Knoxville area, um, (laughs) please message me on on our website or our Facebook group. And I will gladly add you in, and you can come and play in my game. (laughs) So, hey, if you did not catch that, here's the recap. If you're in the Knoxville, Tennessee area, Zen is putting together an actual play with a game store that's going to let you all record live, face-to-face with dice rolling at a table. And you know what? We'd like you to join us to be a player for Seize the GM. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash group slash Seize the GM, on Instagram or on Twitter, and let us know if you are local and interested and Zen will reach out. Yes, I will. <laughs> so, well, since I was, I was thinking about this when, when I started working on this, and, and I thought, you know, there's, there's lots of things when you're, when you're world building. And, you know, we've talked about already, we've talked about things like, you know, mapping for it. We've talked about world base world building, you know, like different aspects of it. And once you kind of have a little bit set up, then comes what are you doing with it? Yeah, how do you put that into play? How do you actually, pardon that pun, roll it forward into what we're talking about today, which is campaign design? Yeah. Yeah, and it it can be tricky because a lot of world builders will just keep building and building and, and building, and it becomes kind of a compulsion to keep building. It's enjoyable. It's something that you get a lot out of. You get to see the pieces fall into place, and, and as you do that, it's something that is a little addictive. But if you're not writing a novel, we're here to play games, which means we need to talk about how to do that. And how to incorporate those players into that and start your campaign design. Now, a campaign, just in case you want to know what we're referring to, is a specific set of adventures or length of time spent in a game world and is a collected, unified, thematic element to your ongoing game. Yes. Now, here is something that you can do. Lots of game companies do this. So they have their game world, and they'll have, like, Paizo in particular is really good for this because every six months they have a campaign that they publish. And every six months you can have, if you don't like this one, wait six months, you got a new one. And it explores parts of their world. It talks about ongoing things. Now, this is an example of what you can do. So if you've got like, I've got this world, I've got enough of it down. Now I need to start sharing it with my players. This is where your campaign design kind of starts is you have to figure out what, like kind of generally you need to figure out what are the overall like themes and ideas that you kind of want to tie together 
When when you look at that overall idea that will drive you forward, you've got two ways you can really do it, either internal or external. Um, internal is a campaign centered around you know, internal choices and challenges to your characters. Is this a story about seductive evil and what it does? Is it a story about how uh, the ability to influence the world changes these people? Or is it an external campaign these are the ones that you may think of first stop yeah. a marauding empire rescue a village from the dragon something external to the characters in the party is the theme or or unifying force of your campaign and honestly i like the external ones better because i trust my players to handle kind of the internal growth aspect and i usually default to looking at an external kind of campaign idea or theme to work with. There's a reason that that works really well. And that is because what you can do is you can, you know, the players are at home. All of a sudden, you know, catastrophic event occurs and they have to either roll with it, get up. You know, it's the call to adventure. In like the hero's journey, it's that call to action. I have to do something. Well, and I think internal-oriented campaigns have seen a rise, and I think that has gone hand-in-hand hand with the popularity of narrative-style gaming, which yeah. is its own wonderful thing, but is not what I default to. But with a narrative style, with one that is more driven through... Uh, descriptors rather than mechanics, it's easier to set up that internal theme or challenge as the unifying component. You don't have to stat it out. All you have to do is, as the GM, it. set the stage. Yeah, state it. Once you once you state that this is the ultimate end goal, and this is what you want to see, then, yeah, it's very easy to do that. And if your players are are in it for that, because that's the other thing you kind of need to, to think about when you're doing this is, are my players going to be up for something that is very cerebral and nuanced and very internalizing feelings and everything else that's going on? Or are they just like, you know, I've had a crappy day at the office. I just want to smash some works. Another way to look at this distinction with a similar campaign and setting and, and what an internal versus external design will give you is look at James Bond. When they revamped and relaunched Bond with Casino Royale with Daniel Craig, that was a very internal focused campaign. If you go back and look at Dr. No and the original Sean Connery movies, you'll see an external-focused campaign with the same core character, the same core themes, and even some of the same actual story, but how that shift in orientation can lead to a different kind of story. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. That That is one of the the beauties of it is – yeah, you and look at look at those tropes from you know movies and plays even. I mean, just 
anything that that puts that out there, TV shows, like they will. They'll Their give story you those... beats happen for a reason. Exactly. They understand the narrative structure very, very well. That's what they do. That's their job. So steal from the people who do this professionally. If you're not a professional story writer or even an amateur, I want to write stories because you can be an amazing GM because you want to tell you want to tell the story of these characters. Now, there's no right or wrong answer. Some internal-oriented campaigns are better than some external-oriented campaigns, and we all know that that's just kind of a sliding scale of where you and your people are comfortable, your players. The other thing to remember is you can have a majorly internal or external campaign and then have a sub-theme, a secondary theme. Your internal campaign may be about unrequited love, and the lens that that is filtered through could be an external focus where the unrequited love is a Romeo and Juliet-like set up in the Cold War where the person on the other side of these affections is an agent for, if you're playing the USSR, the US. If you're playing the US, the USSR. You can do that freely. But one of the things to take into consideration when you start looking at that is what is the strength of the system you are using? Oh God, yes, because that that can be that this can honestly make or break a campaign because if the game system that like each system has its own peculiarities. Uh, no, that's not quite the. They have their own flavor and and things that they do great. And not all games are created equal, especially in this regard. Because if you are, for instance, you want to run a very, like, noir detective like creepy kind of you know story you're not going to do that with something like um dnd it just doesn't work very well no now, the system itself doesn't support that you can do it, but it's not at strength. And right. there's a whole other episode we can do in advanced campaign design about playing against type. But for now, if you want something that's you know science fantasy, if you want to do a Flash Gordon-style space pulp, Starfinder is fantastic at that. Oh, yeah. But if you want to do a murder mystery slinking around kind of heist style. <laughs> Blades you, in the dark, baby. Yeah, because Starfinder is not <laughs> going to be very good at that. You no. can do it, yeah, but the Blades in the Dark is a more natural fit. Uh, the actual leverage role-playing game is a, an obvious natural fit. Yeah, 
those help you because when the underlying crunch supports the theme you've chosen, it's easier for you to prepare. Even if you are a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants improvisational storyteller who is able to walk in with no more than 15 minutes of thought and three note cards, you want it in a system that makes that easier for you. Right. Yeah, because, you know, there is – there are some things that just – like an investigative uh, Trail of Cthulhu is great for investigative games. I mean, that's the whole premise is you're hunting down mythos things. I mean, you get no more if you've read any Lovecraft. (laughs) It's all that. Shadowrun is underrated in this regard as an investigatory system. It's built around a core conceit that you're supposed to investigate and, and do legwork, and it actually does a really good job of that. Conversely, there are games like, uh, I think Cyberpunk was never as good at the mystery and investigatory part. Oh, God, no. Of that setting. But it's not what its strength was. Like, that's not what it was. Exactly. If you look at the original, like, Cyberpunk genre, like, novels and stories and everything else, the Cyberpunk game played to those strengths. Very dark, dystopic, you know, always being under somebody else's thumb, oppressed by everything, and you're still fighting against it. Well, it it very much bought into uh, the fight and punk part of the cyberpunk formulation. Yeah. And it has a similar setting, but its crunch does not support a mystery-style game as much as Shadowrun. And so it's just another example of how uh, the strength of the system can help or hinder you when you have a similar setting. And that's something else you want to consider when you're translating your world-building into a campaign. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's also the other thing that you want... There's another important thing that you kind of want to think about when you're doing all of this, not just the systems... But how long are you wanting to run this thing? Because you could have like this grand epic, you know, Fellowship of the Rings story that you want to tell. And that's going to play a whole lot different than the like, I have this cool idea for this short, like, one or two like adventure thing a campaign can be as short as a handful of sessions yeah i personally think it has to last at least two sessions but that's me being pedantic i would say that it has to be at least that because otherwise it's a one shot (laughs) but yeah and that's uh, the, the last next consideration that you're thinking about is, or you know what your basic theme is, you know you've got a system that's going to support it. How long do you want to take to tell that story? Yeah. And how long do you want your players to have in that story? If right, to develop those characters in that story that you have. Because, yeah, it, all of that matters. A big, complicated, externally focused campaign involving you know war between two kingdoms could have you know 18 months or more real time 
components where there is the setup to the, the Cold War suddenly sparking hotter and hotter into the full actual conflict into the what do we do picking up the pieces parts. That's a very different set of considerations than I want to see what it's like to have pride be your downfall. I think I can, I've got three sessions we can work this through. Very yeah. different games. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that is something to, to think about because if, if you don't want to have things drag out for years, there's nothing wrong with doing shorter campaigns. We're not all in college anymore. We don't all assume it's going to last forever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and for those of you that are in college and think it's going to last forever, it will until you get out of college. <laughs> so stay in school. See? Public service announcement. Stay in school and get your degree. <laughs> and while we're on that did not topic. do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, while we're on that topic, should you have handouts for your players? Okay. I... I come at this from a very, um, very thought out thing because I, I am the type of player that wants to dig into the histories and all of those things. So my players hate my handouts. <laughs> Because I have given the, I have, for one game that I ran one time, I actually handed my players a 64-page handout. Now, do you know who read the 64-page handout? Um, you. No one. I wrote it. I didn't have to read it. I knew it already. Now, in all fairness, then, when I was getting ready to run a Shadowrun bit for you... Oh, my God. You did, you, you did that massive thing. As you say, how much of that did you read that was pure fluff? Oh, yeah. But, see, I also didn't have a lot of time to actually dig into it very much because I had so many other things going on when so, that was happening. Zen and I both like toys. We both like handouts, yeah. so we both say you should. Now, it doesn't have to be something that is as complicated and complex and rich in design as what Zen or I might do. If you've been reading along in the card catalog, you know that I tend to go, oh, hey, I need to write 2,500 words this week. <laughs> yeah. you, can, you can make it simple. You can make it a sketched-out map on a piece of graph paper with just some different colored pencils, maybe even just different shading from your regular pencils. You could give them a, a quick parable that is the history of the world in mythology, mythological form. You could go back and listen to episode 60 when you make that map and get some inspiration for it, but some kind of tangible representation even if it is loose, even if it is not you know, buttoned down, absolute, gives players something to work off of. And even the players who most want to just, hey, what's over that hill, need to know where they're standing to get over the hill they're going to go off the map on. Yeah. Actually, there was a... 
I have it's from uh, the website is Crichton Broadhurst and in there he actually had a uh, he talked about a campaign like handout for players and it is it's a wonderful wonderful thing and I will find the link for it and we will put that bad boy in the doobly doo because it's uh, it's so good and it's Designing a Campaign Primer. Ooh. Yeah. This sounds like someone who is, is, is probably very accomplished at doing and talking about the kinds of things that we are doing right now. This is the... This guy is involved with uh, Raging Swan Press. So he actually has his own game imprint company. And it's... It's very very nice to do and it's uh yeah it is wonderful and it's it lays out all of the best practices and everything for it there is nothing uh i i ran across these guys on facebook and they usually put out a bunch of stuff like once a week or so and anytime they have new blog posts they show up in Facebook. So it's, it is well worth doing it. I also, I, after reading this, I actually came up with a, not just a, a campaign primer, but also how to design a player primer. So like when people want to start playing, like what characters or what classes are allowed, like, all of the breakdown of what's allowed, what isn't allowed, and how to lay it out so that with like a short one or two page campaign primer and a one page, here's what your character can be built from, they may skim over the campaign stuff, but they'll at least read the player primer. And the player primer will tell them the type of game you want to run. Use that as a way to tell them what you want to run. Well, it sounds a lot like a series Bible if you're writing for TV and, and kind of having everything collected in a way that will communicate to the writer, or in this case, the player, the basics of the world they need to keep in mind in that context. Yeah. Where are we? Who are you? What's the plan? And giving them something to rip off of instead of being left adrift. Yeah, it's it's... Yeah, the series is really good. Like this guy, I, I love the stuff that they've done with this. And yeah, it at some point I will have to dig out that uh, the how to design a character primer that I I wrote up, and I'll have to put that in the in the in the website at some point. <laughs> but that sounds like a great idea to add to World Building Wednesday blog posts when they roll out. Yeah, once they roll out. 
But these are some of the ideas of how you take a world and kind of move towards a campaign. And, and yes, it's a high level of abstraction that we discussed today about internal versus external ideas, about the system and, and the length of time. But like our world building 101, that has to be your first step. Yeah. Because those considerations help you shape the rest. And it really isn't that big of a step or that much extra time to go, do I want this to be about wanton violence? Do I want this to be about the limitations of violence? Do I want this to be about the horror well, of fighting? Do and, I want this to be about high school dating relationships? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, it can be about anything, and and those are that's the beauty of it. So, but as we're always ever so fond of saying, this is just the beginning, episode. and we've got a whole nother episode, or maybe more, that we can go into as we do deeper and deeper dives into this. So, I think uh, we'll just go ahead and roll on into the next segment. And now we enter Stat Blocks. This is a segment where you can use something that we've created in your game tonight. Okay. One, two, three, not it. All right, so Actually, for Stat Blocks. <laughs> since yeah. I, I do Lexicon, we'll let you go ahead and do your Stat Block, then me. Or no, I should probably go first, shouldn't I? So it's not it, just me talking for a long period. If you want to hear the sound of your own voice, that's your call entirely. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. So we'll we'll do this uh, this way. I'll go, then then you go, and then we'll do the next one. <sighs> Sandalia. Before time, in the dark. He was spawned with his many brothers and sisters in the pools. There was nothing to help them or tell them what was right or wrong. As time spun forward, thirst was born to them, which they quenched in the birthing pools. Then came the harder one, hunger. The only thing to eat was the siblings. They all started at that sensation as that sensation grew stronger. As they consumed their siblings, they grew in size and power and intellect. When the last of them were consumed by Sandalia, as he was calling himself now, a new sensation grew and he began to tire. The being that spawned this pool watched her progeny do what they do best, kill and eat. At last, there was only one left. She knew she had to hide it from the others like her, for they would kill it. Warriors were not to have children. It was part of how this caste came to be. She shouldn't have been able to. She shouldn't have been able to, but she did. She picked up the writhing mass of tentacles and torso and found a quiet, dark pool. In this part of the outer realms and placed it there to grow and become one with the realm. Time passed, millennia without counting. 
Sandalia grew in the dark, absorbing knowledge and understanding from the chaos of the realm. Things came to the pool, and he consumed them. Always hungry, this one. Till one day, something came to his cave, and he awoke to his full glory. A demon lord of the abyss, Sandalia. Or the hungry one. Interest. <laughs> I have because see, you always hear like you know the the oh this is how the gods came to be and this and that and nobody ever talks about like the demons and the devils those outer planar beings like how did they come to be? Not always the good ones because all the good ones are like the gods that go live over there. Well, these demon lords and, and devil, like arch devils and stuff like that, they're all just as strong as some of the gods. And nobody talks about them. This is why I like Mistara. <laughs> yeah. Your immortals came about in the ways the immortals came about, including the entropic ones. Do you know, do you know who I took inspiration for this from? Who did you take inspiration for this from? Zargon. Couldn't tell. (laughs) Okay, for those of you listening who are wondering what kind of a thing we're riffing off of here, Zargon is a particular creature who shows up in a particular adventure set on Mistara that is actually one of the fabled adventures of D&D that was rarely reprinted for many years and lived on only in people's memories called The Lost City of Synodicia. We'll discuss it at some other time. But for now... Let me give you my stat block. It's almost a cliche when you hear about it, a neutral ground, a space for all to come in the midst of a bar. How many bad Cold War novels start with this hackneyed concept and spin it into something that can barely hold its own weight? The dark corners and shadowed booths with suspicious-looking patrons and an old bartender just watching you. That's why it was a surprise to find yourself in Batavian Dreams. It's a strikingly clean location. High ceilings and bright lights with just artfully off-white leave little to the imagination, and the minimalist decor provides almost no distinguishing features other than, well, its indistinctiveness. The bar menu itself is full of quietly and competently prepared American classic cocktails, German beer, and Chilean wines. It's a small plates menu, including a convoluted assortment of tapas, dumplings, and more multicultural fusion foods. It's almost like the choice was made to not make choices. That is the genius of Batavian Dreams. Whether you think the owner is a Roman history buff or referencing Jakarta, its ubiquity in the restaurant and bar sphere means the meetings here look like bad first dates arranged through an app and the online reviews stay strangely positive. It's everywhere and nowhere by its very nature. The bigger question in your head, though, is who set this meeting up and what do they have to offer you? Nice. I like it. Instead of the creepy old dark CD bar. It's the generic, well-yelp-reviewed boring bar. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I thought I'd take that idea and kind of twist it a little bit on its side and it plays into some of the ideas we talked about in campaign design, where this is one of those locations that sets things off and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That was pretty cool. Well, let's uh, go ahead and flip on over to our next segment. Lexicon, where we give you cool words to help improve your vocabulary. Okay. Our fun word today is cozen. Do you know what this word is? Um, something on the order of tricking or cajoling. Hmm. Well, it is a verb. Okay, good start. That's that's, that's getting close to where I was going. You're you're in the direction. Um, it is to deceive, win over, or induce to do something by artful coaxing and wheedling or shrewd trickery. And its first known use hmm. is 1573. And the history and etymology is perhaps, I love this. Oh dear. From, this obs- is- from obsolete Italian, Cozonary? Uh, Cozonari. Uh, sure, why not? From Italian... Uh, Cozone. Cozone, or horse trader. And from Latin... Uh, Coconian? Or Cocayan? Which is trader. So it's all about swindling by, by the art of... The traitor, basically. Interesting. Yeah. And the popularity is in the bottom 40% of words. Uh, I'm shocked. Amazed at this. Yeah, because I don't think that many people have ever even used this word. <laughs> Clearly, I'd heard it before at some point. but yeah. um, It's yeah. seen a few uses recently, but it's, yeah, it's one of those that's... Not used often. So, well, let's go ahead and... uh, We're not going to waste any time with just the two of us. And because you at home have valuable time, so we will try to keep it a little bit tighter. Yes. So, what do you got? For closing remarks, I'm going to recommend that you go buy a book. Uh, doesn't matter which one, but go buy something from Evil Hat Production Games. They are the company behind Fate and all of its iterations, and they've put their heart and soul into that. And recently they kind of announced they had to cut back on some product lines, that they had been overextended and have had to let some people go or not renew some people's contracts in the near future. And it's a hard business. And if you like their work, you should buy their work, and you should go buy something from them. Yes. Yeah, they are. Uh, was that one of the people that we sat down and had like 
a pretty long discussion with at yeah, Origins. Yeah, they were, they were fantastic people at Origins. Yeah, that's what I thought. So hopefully we're going to we're gonna reach they, out to them and see if they can... Uh, they've been around for over a decade. They have yeah. made some books that, frankly, have changed some of the landscapes of gaming with Fate and the way that it's kind of won over people. They help gaming in ways that is hard to explain. And yeah. some of their other products and the historical looks are things I read for fun. So go buy an evil hat product. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, mine is going to be Luke Cage Season 2. <laughs> I finally got around to it. It is so good. Speaking of those internal and externally focused campaigns... In a lot of ways, I think they did a great job making an internally focused campaign for season two for Luke Cage. They did. it Because it is all about his personal growth. Season one was very externally focused. Yeah. Very much about Harlem. Well, it still really is. But it's well, also, it's it it's, happens at in Harlem. It happens in Harlem, but it's also a war between two factions and Luke is caught in the middle of it all. So if you haven't seen it, go out and see it. It's on Netflix. It's really good. And the music is amazing. Links in the doodly-doo. Yeah. Like, the, uh, all I'm going to say is there are two styles of music that are... Um, I'm going to say this. It, they are... They're black culture's music, and it's amazing. And I love both of these styles that are just smattered through the entire series. They made a very good choice of having music that is identified with Harlem and that plays to the same themes. They also had a great number of actual musicians performing in the episodes. Yeah, And if you like music... Of any kind, you should check it out. Yeah, it's worth it for the music alone. (laughs) So, um, I guess until next time. Shoot us a line on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Let us know how you liked this episode and what you do to help build a campaign. Yeah. And um, also, for those who have the ducats to throw at us, I'm going to shamelessly plug our Patreon page. At uh, patreon.com slash seize the GM podcast. We're going to try to record some Patreon only jabberings. Uh, Think about extended banter segments. And if you become a Patreon subscriber and supporter, you will have the opportunity to set the banter topic. Yeah. Definitely. So on that note, until next time, have some fun. Bye. You can contact us or the show using Twitter, Facebook, or plain old email. Our Twitter accounts are at Zendead, at Jules Podcaster, and at 2050 Gardemanger. And the show's Twitter account is at Seize the GM. You can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Seize the GM. 
Or chat with us and other RPG lovers in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash seize the GM. You can email questions or comments to the show at admin at seizethegm.com. And if you have a few bills you want to send us, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. And we thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Seize the GM. Feel free to leave a comment about this episode on our webpage, www.seizethegm.com. Let the dice fall where they may, and we'll see you all again next week. Seize the GM is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. All copyrighted materials referenced herein are held by their respective owners. No infringement intended and no claim of ownership is implied. The music for the show is Dreaming Spirit off the album Ghost Machine by the Enigma TNG. His music is released under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license.